Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is climate change. This is in The Guardian. Labour to set out plans to decarbonise UK and fulfil Green Jobs Pledge. Labour is to set out how the UK can move swiftly to a decarbonised future to tackle the unfolding climate crisis and put meat on the bones of its promise to create hundreds of thousands of high-skilled and unionised green jobs. Trade unionists and industry leaders will come together with academics, engineers and public institutions to build detailed regional plans setting out the challenges and opportunities ahead. The proposal due to be outlined by Rebecca Long-Bailey, the Shadow Business Secretary, will involve a national call for evidence and a series of regional events to build a detailed action plan to maximise the benefits of moving to a zero-carbon future. A decade of austerity and decades of neoliberalism have left many in our country asking what is Britain for? Long-Bailey told The Guardian that this has been brought into focus by the government's handling of Brexit, which is at its core deeply pessimistic with nothing to say about the future. She said a future Labour government would oversee an economic revolution to tackle the climate crisis using the full power of the state to decarbonise the economy and create hundreds of thousands of green jobs in struggling towns and cities across the UK. We believe that together we can transform the UK through a green jobs revolution, tackling the environmental crisis in a way that brings hope and prosperity back to parts of the UK that have been held back for too long. Last year, a UN report said there were only 12 years left to avoid the worst impacts of climate breakdown, and this week a report said insects were facing extinction, threatening a catastrophic collapse of nature's ecosystems, and another said climate change posed a systemic risk to the economy and society. Labour's pitch echoes the Green New Deal that is gaining ground in the US, backed by left-wing Democrats such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. I talk about the Green New Deal in last week's episode. Long Bailey said Labour was determined to move beyond rhetoric about a green revolution and work out exactly how that could be achieved and how it could translate to new well-paid unionised jobs across the UK. We're launching an unprecedented call for evidence about what this means for your town, your city, your region, she said. The article was on. We want to bring unions, industry, universities, the public sector and others together to build this vision out into a practical reality. Labour says a key plank of its plan will be to ensure a just transition to high-quality green jobs for those currently working in carbon-emitting industries. To do that, it will have to persuade its trade union backers who represent people in high-carbon industries that there is a viable economic alternative. The party hopes that once the evidence has been collected, it will form the basis of a green paper to be published in autumn 2019 at a party conference, with plans for how each region might move to a decarbonised future. Long Bailey told The Guardian last year that the climate crisis was incredibly dangerous and said the UK's entire society and economy needed to be refocused to meet the looming challenge. She said the announcement was a key step to realising that ambition. This is not a blithe promise, she said. This is about the jobs at the end of your road, from the Clyde to the Humber to the Mersey. This is about our future. There's another article here in The Guardian. Plummeting insect numbers threaten collapse of nature. The world's insects are hurtling down the path to extinction, threatening a catastrophic collapse of nature's ecosystems, according to the first global scientific review. More than 40% of insect species are declining and a third are endangered, the analysis found. The rate of extinction is eight times faster than that of mammals, birds and reptiles. The total mass of insects is falling by a precipitous 2.5% a year. 
according to the best data available, suggesting they could vanish within a century. The planet is at the start of a sixth mass extinction in its history, with huge losses already reported in larger animals that are easier to study. But insects are by far the most varied and abundant animals, outweighing humanity by 17 times. They are essential for the proper functioning of all ecosystems, the researchers say, as food for other creatures, pollinators and recyclers of nutrients. Insect population collapses have recently been reported in Germany and Puerto Rico, but the review strongly indicates the crisis is global. The researchers set out their conclusions in unusually forceful terms for a peer-reviewed scientific paper. The insect trends confirm that this sixth major extinction event is profoundly impacting on life forms on our planet. Unless we change our ways of producing food, insects as a whole will go down the path of extinction in a few decades, they write. The repercussions this will have for the planet's ecosystems are catastrophic to say the least. The analysis, published in the journal Biological Conservation, says intensive agriculture is the main driver of the declines, particularly the heavy use of pesticides. Urbanization and climate change are also significant factors. If insect species losses cannot be halted, this will have catastrophic consequences for both the planet's ecosystems and for the survival of mankind, said Francisco Sanchez Bayo at the University of Sydney, Australia, who wrote the review with Chris Whitehouse at the China Academy of Agricultural Sciences in Beijing. The 2.5% rate of annual loss over the last 25 to 30 years is shocking, Sanchez Bayo told The Guardian. It is very rapid. In 10 years, you will have a quarter less. In 50 years, only half left. And in 100 years, you will have none. The article goes on. One of the biggest impacts of insect loss is on the many birds, reptiles, amphibians and fish that eat insects. If this food source is taken away, all these animals starve to death, he said. Such cascading effects have already been seen in Puerto Rico, where a recent study revealed a 98% fall in ground insects over 35 years. The new analysis selected the 73 best studies done to date to assess the insect decline. Butterflies and moths are among the worst hit. For example, the number of widespread butterfly species fell by 58% on farmed land in England between 2000 and 2009. The UK has suffered the biggest recorded insect falls overall, but that is probably a result of being more intensely studied than most places. Bees have also been seriously affected, with only half the bumblebee species found in Oklahoma in the US in 1949 being present in 2013. The number of honeybee colonies in the US was 6 million in 1947, but 3.5 million have been lost since. There are more than 350,000 species of beetle, and many are thought to have declined, especially dung beetles. But there are also big gaps in knowledge, with very little known about many flies, ants, aphids, shield bugs and crickets. Experts say there is no reason to think they are faring any better than the studied species. A small number of adaptable species are increasing in number, but not nearly enough to outweigh the big losses. Well, decarbonizing is just a term meaning transforming society in the image of the elite's agenda using climate change as the excuse. It's basically the UK version of the Green New Deal, which I talk about in the last episode. The claim that our entire society needs to be centred on tackling climate change just means transforming society in line with the agenda climate change is being used to justify. I talk about climate change in episodes 18, 29 and last week's episode. The article talks about homes in the UK meeting the energy efficiency standard And that means smart meters being installed, among other things. And I talk about smart meters in episodes 1 and 17. The first article talks about creating hundreds of thousands of green jobs. But Agenda 21, justified by climate change, seeks the regionalization of countries. And people herded into smart cities and away from the countryside and rural land. 
countries are planned to be broken up into regions and each region will specialize in a different area. So depending on which region or sector you live in, you'll do a different job. Also, small and medium-sized businesses are subject to increasing regulation and red tape, not least to tackle climate change, because the idea is to get rid of business and to have corporations running everything. This is why we're seeing privatisation of rail travel and the running down of policing and the NHS, because the idea is to privatise and corporatise. Agenda 21 seeks deindustrialization, and this is why industry is targeted for its use of fossil fuel. Not because it's causing climate change, it's not because the idea is to deindustrialize, get rid of business and corporatize everything. Also worth noting is the fact that as I talk about over two parts in episode 4 and also in episode 47, we are fast moving towards a society akin to the movie The Hunger Games, where everyone is in poverty, and I mean everyone. That's the agenda, dependent on the state for survival. Alongside this, we have the AI takeover of the jobs market, which I talked about in last week's episode. So the idea that we'll have this jobs revolution and massive prosperity as a result is very short-sighted given the direction society is going and the agenda. Now, of course, it doesn't have to be that way, but at the moment that agenda is unfolding and climate change is being used to bring that about. I've talked before about the decline in the bee population in episode 8, and there's a very significant agenda reason why this is happening. The article talks about collapse of nature, when that's the agenda. The decline of species is important not just for the species itself, but for other species. We have, of course, the food chain, and when a certain species declines, it causes a chain reaction as food is denied. There have been calls for synthetic insects, which have been developed to replace actual insects, because the idea is for a synthetic world and an end to nature. The new, often younger members in favour of the Labour Party's environmental policy, as this article talks about, are the progressives, the clueless, idealistic progressives who have bought the official line of human-caused climate change and done no research of their own outside of the official line and believe they're radical and saving the planet when they're actually calling for the most extraordinary transformation of society on a global scale in line with the elite's agenda in ways that I explain in episodes 4, 11 and 36. We're looking at a total transformation of planet Earth unfolding, and this connects into the toxicity agenda, the fact that we live in an extremely toxic world already, never mind where it's meant to end. I talk about the toxicity and radiation, not least from technology, wireless technology, in the environment and society in general in episode 25. The world is not like we think it is, and if people continue in their ignorance, willful ignorance to a large extent, then it won't be the world it is now any longer, and not too long from now either. This is in the Daily Mail. Mark Zuckerberg wants to build a brain-computer interface that can read your thoughts, report claims. Facebook is developing technology that could soon make it possible to read your mind. CEO Mark Zuckerberg detailed how the Silicon Valley giant is researching a brain-computer interface in an interview with Harvard Law School professor Jonathan Zittrain, according to Wired. In the near future, this system would allow users to interact with augmented reality environments using just their brain. No keyboards, touchscreens, or hand gestures required. The concept that Zuckerberg envisions would allow users to navigate menus, move objects in an AR room, or even type words with their brain. Augmented reality is basically using technology like a smartphone or a tablet to basically look at something with the camera of the device 
and overlay something on top of it so you can see it in a different way on the device. The article goes on. Users would wear a device akin to a shower cap on their heads that's capable of picking up blood flows, brain activity and thoughts, Wired explained. This technology is helped by the fact that researchers can already detect when a user is thinking about something in particular by looking at their neural activity. A mind-reading device will make it that much easier for humans to interact with technology, Zuckerberg claims. The way that our phones work today and all computing systems organized around apps and tasks is fundamentally not how our brains work and how we approach the world, Zuckerberg told Zitrain, according to Wired. That's one of the reasons why I'm just very excited longer term about especially things like augmented reality, because it'll give us a platform that I think actually is how we think about stuff. Well, I don't know how much Mark Zuckerberg thinks about what he's doing and what he knows about what he's promoting. But anyway, the article goes on. He also sidestepped any possible ethical implications that could arise from the device, saying users would have to consent to the product. Presumably this would be something that someone would choose to use as a product, he added. Zuckerberg said the system would not be invasive because that might prevent it from being something everyone is going to use. Well, of course it would be invasive, that's the idea. Technology like this is brought in under the premise that it can help read thoughts when it's actually about when in the end it's actually about manipulating thought or controlling thought and in the end beyond that the article goes on however in 2017 Zuckerberg pledged 50 million dollars of his own money to the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub in support of a cohort of researchers some of which are investigating brain machine interfaces that could be used to treat diseases like Parkinson's and epilepsy while the implants would only be targeted for medical applications, it's possible they could have other uses as well. That same year, Facebook unveiled new research around technology that would let users type directly from their brain at the firm's F8 developer conference. In a Facebook post, Zuckerberg described why he thinks the technology is promising. Well, of course he did. That's what he's there to do. He's just a front man. Our brains produce enough data to stream four HD movies every second, Zuckerberg wrote. The problem is that the best way we have to get information out into the world, speech, can only transmit about the same amount of data as a 1980s modem. We're working on a system that will let you type straight from your brain about five times faster than you can type on your phone today. Eventually, we want to turn it into a wearable technology that can be manufactured at scale. Even a simple yes-no brain click would help make things like augmented reality feel much more naturally added. As Wired pointed out, Zuckerberg's comments at Harvard come at a time when user trust in Facebook continues to waver. The delete Facebook movement has gained steam in the past year in particular, as Facebook has been hit by numerous privacy scandals, the worst of which being the Cambridge Analytica breach. I talk about the Cambridge Analytica scandal in episode 12. Last March, some 87 million users' data was harvested and shared with Trump-affiliated campaign research firm Cambridge Analytica without their knowledge. The scandals prompted Zuckerberg to unveil a privacy-focused vision earlier this month. Well, let's get one thing straight from the start. Mark Zuckerberg does not want to create a brain-computer interface to read your thoughts because of his own idea. Mark Zuckerberg wants to create a brain-computer interface to read your thoughts because of those that control him and control Facebook, which is the Pentagon and DARPA, as I explained in episode 19, where I talk about the connections between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon. Zuckerberg is just a frontman. These social media giants and Amazon, which has a $600 million cloud computing contract with the CIA, are military organizations. This is why Google, Facebook and YouTube are censoring online speech and free expression in ways I explained in episode 27. This is why Facebook, Google and YouTube have 
the greatest concentration of surveillance and data gathering profiling power the world has ever seen, as I explained in episode 45. This is why Google had a contract at one point with Boston Dynamics, a robotics corporation, and both were involved in creating identical military law enforcement robots. I talk about that in episode 16. This is why Facebook, Google and Amazon are involved in research and development of artificial intelligence, for reasons I explain in episode 11. They're a research and development arm of the Pentagon, and therefore the military. When people are judging technological possibility, they should remember a simple rule of thumb. If the public know about it, far more advanced technology of its kind already exists in the shadows waiting to be revealed with a cover story that some geek in a garage or university dorm room or some corporation has invented it, when in truth, for some of this technology anyway at least, especially advanced technology, especially advanced technology, it's been in the underground bases being developed for a long time before the public see it. Do people really think that the elite were sitting around before computerization, drumming their fingers, just hoping that someone would invent computerization, without which their agenda up to this point could not have happened in terms of what computerization and the internet allows for? Of course not, because the technological possibility in the unseen is far, far beyond the technological possibility in the scene, the public arena. The internet came from military technology. DARPA claims credit, along with CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, for creating the internet. And of course CERN has the Large Hadron Collider, which I say is far from what we're told it's supposed to be. Anyway, the Rothschilds, according to an Oxford don called Kitty Little, who worked in nuclear power circles and worked for the Rothschilds, said that the Rothschilds were the ones who introduced nuclear power to the world. And that would never have happened unless there was an agenda goal to be realised. And that goal I explain in episode 25. Just like the internet, just like the internet created from military technology would never have been made available to the public unless there was an agenda goal to be realised. And the social media giants allow for all of the agenda goals behind the internet to be realised. Because they're military organisations. The reason a brain-computer interface works is because two computers are being connected. One, a biological computer, the other, a technological computer, but two computers all the same. It's interesting that Zuckerberg talks about technology like smartphones and other technology not working in the same way the brain does. I've talked in episode 21 about how technology is changing the brain. Gender. This is in the Daily Mail. Councils are taking children who want to change gender into care if parents row with the youngsters over their wishes. Children have been taken into council care after rows with their parents over wanting to change gender and emerged yesterday. At least three children were taken into care last year after their families objected to their wishes, but the local authorities involved insisted it was not the main reason they intervened. There has been a dramatic increase in the number of youngsters referred for gender identity treatment in recent years and campaigners have warned some parents have felt powerless to act if they believe their child was making a flawed decision. Two councils revealed that children have been taken into care after arguments about their wish to change gender with their parents or carers following a freedom of information request. Social workers at Hillingdon Council in West London said they placed two children in foster homes because of the disputes. And a second West London council, Ealing, said it had done the same with fewer than five children. It refused to say how many exactly. Both councils denied the children were taken into care because they were transgender or solely because their parents or carers did not support their decision. Healing Borough Council said, in the two cases referred to, the children were not taken into care specifically 
specifically because they are transgender. No child is taken into care solely because they are transgender. Whilst a child's sexual identity is assessed, it is complex family dynamics and or contextual safeguarding issues which may negatively impact on a child that are usually the cause of social worker intervention. Ealing Borough Council said we have never taken a child into care on the basis of a dispute with their parents regarding gender reassignment. While we need to protect the confidentiality of those concerned, we can confirm that care was provided to young people over 16 who are now adults due to safety concerns which were not predominantly related to gender reassignment. Not all councils responded to the Freedom of Information request, which was made by the Sun, meaning the true number of children taken into care could be higher. According to the most recent figures, the number of young people referred by the NHS for gender identity treatment has risen by a thousand percent in six years. There were 2,519 referrals in 2017 to 2018, of which 71% were female. Equalities Minister Penny Mordaunt has ordered an investigation into why so many girls have sought gender reassignment treatment. Campaigner Stephanie Davis Arai, the founder of Transgender Trend, which represents parents concerned about the rising number of youngsters seeking treatment, said parents should be able to voice their concerns to their children without fear of being punished. The High Court has previously granted a request by a 16-year-old that his parents should not be kept informed about his possible gender reassignment. The child, identified only as PD, was born female and told his adoptive parents he wanted to be treated as male, age 13. He formally changed his name, but his parents continued to call him by his female name, a family court judge. In 2016, Mr. Justice Keon publicly ruled PD was entitled to cut his parents out. He struggles to understand their complete lack of support and understanding. Well, parents are quite right to question their children's feelings. They're kids. They're in no position to make an informed decision about their gender and sexuality. The reason enormous numbers of kids are now suddenly questioning their gender on a scale they were not doing so before is because of the propaganda through education, media and entertainment to confuse children about their gender who were not confused before. I've talked about the agenda behind technology and AI in episode 11. If you want to merge the human mind with AI, it's much easier to bring about that transition if people are already prepared through constantly conversing with AI as if it's a human, through these AI assistants like Alexa and Siri. If you've got people constantly conversing with a gender-neutral AI, then it's making people more familiar with the concept. I have no problem with people being any gender, but there's an agenda behind transgender and fluid gender, which I've talked about in episode 8, among other episodes. I talk about the state and social services taking children away from loving parents in episode 20. That's happening on a scale most people don't even realise. In this article, they say children are not taken away by social services just because of their parents' attitudes towards them being transgender or fluid gender but as i explain in episode 20 they've been taken away for far less and it's happening partly to break up the family unit although there's deeper reasons it's happening as well this is another expression as i've talked about before of the state taking more and more control away from parents ultimately the agenda in the end is that the state becomes the parents rather than families as we have today Which leads me on to the final article today. Ultimately, we're looking at the end of the human mind in totality, as I explain in episode 11, and the end of human, unless this is addressed. And the next subject this week is family. This is in The Telegraph. Schools in France to replace mother and father with parent one and two under controversial same-sex amendment. 
French schools are to replace the words mother and father with parent one and parent two under an amendment to a law passed this week. Supporters of the change say it will stop discrimination against same-sex parents, but critics argue it dehumanises parenthood, is ugly, and can lead to rows over who gets to be parent one. The amendment was passed by MPs on Tuesday night as part of a wider so-called law to build a school of trust, which among other things also makes attendance compulsory for all three-year-olds. This amendment aims to root in law children's family diversity in administrative forms submitted in school, said Valérie Petit, MP for the majority RAM party of President Emmanuel Macron. Miss Petit from the Nord Department said that the words mother and father on all school documents, such as pertaining to the canteen or authorising children to go on excursions, no longer took into account the recently passed gay marriage law, nor the existence of same-sex parents. She added, we have families who find themselves faced with tick boxes stuck in rather old-fashioned social and family models. For us, this article is a measurement of social equality. Socialist MP Joaquin Payot also praise the reform as a question of respecting dignity. You cannot imagine the consequences when children don't feel treated like the others, he said. FCPE, France's biggest parents federation, called it a very good thing. It echoes the recent law on fighting harassment because often situations of child harassment target kids who don't fit the current criteria. But the move angered the mainstream Conservative Republicans, or LR, party in the far right. Conservative MP Xavier Brayton said, when I hear people say this is an old-fashioned model, I would remind people that today among unions celebrated civil or marital, some 95% are man-woman couples. Conservative MP Fabian de Filippo denounced a frightening ideology which in the name of limitless egalitarianism promotes removing points of reference including those regarding the family. The article goes on. The idea of replacing mother and father by parent one and two was already mooted during the debate leading to the 2013 law legalising same-sex marriage, but was not inscribed into legislation at the time. Indeed, Jean-Michael Blanquer, the current education minister, had opposed the amendment on the grounds that this need not be a legislative matter. Eric Ciotti, another right-wing MP, said they swore this was a fantasy, that it would never happen. The negotiation of gender deconstructs the balance of our society. The article goes on. Traditionalists were appalled. Ludovine de la Rochere, president of the Manif Portus organization that opposes gay marriage, called it totally dehumanizing. Children need bearings, she said. Meanwhile, Marine Le Pen, head of the far-right national rally, said the mask has fallen from the Macron camp regarding its view of society. Jordan Bardella, head of Orange European election list, said the move was part of an attempt to ideologically condition children, even claiming that totalitarianism is not far off. The right was not the only camp to express scepticism. AFDH, the French Association for Same-Sex Parents, said that while it welcomed providing a way for such parents to be included in forms, it warned it could create a parental hierarchy. Who's parent one and who's parent two? asked AFDH President Alexander Urwich, who called for more inclusive forms, including the boxes father, mother and legal representative. Jean-Michel Affatier editorialist on Europe One Radio, said that while the change was logical to keep step with administrative reality, turning parents into numbers was very administrative and very ugly. The amendment could yet be rejected by the majority right Senate, but will then return to the National Assembly for a final reading. When this is all about breaking up the family unit, this is a very significant part of the elite's agenda. This is what Aldous Huxley talked about in his novel Brave New World where children were raised by the state and the idea of family was seen as an old concept. The plan is to phase out the idea of the traditional family unit. You can't just end the family unit overnight, it's got to be achieved incrementally by changing the language. 
by taking increasing power away from parents and handing it to the state by propaganda of different ideas of family and over time you phase out the traditional family unit. I suggest it's very possible that gay marriage laws being passed are to advance this agenda. Of course gay people should be allowed to get married and I've no problem with that. I don't care what anyone does as long as they don't impose it on anyone else. But gay marriage law can lead to changes in society like this amendment. And it's not that it shouldn't happen, but, but it's understanding the motivation behind why it happened or may have happened. Critics argue that the amendment could dehumanise the family unit. But as usual, what the critics argue is actually the agenda. Over and over again, I've seen statements in an article where it said experts fear or critics argue this change could lead to this or this or this introduction into society could lead to that. When actually that's the idea. The idea is for children to be raised by the state, not parents. Another way the family unit is being broken up is technology. Family members glued to a smartphone or tablet or other technology and communicating in the same house with that technology rather than talking to each other. Most people would look at the first article today and this article and not see any connection. One's talking about climate change, the other one's talking about family. But there is a connection because in the end, the agenda is for children not just to be raised by the state, but created from scratch in laboratories, created synthetically as opposed to biologically. And synthetic aspects of the body are already being created, like synthetic blood, synthetic skin, synthetic DNA. And in case anyone thinks this idea of synthetic human is ridiculous, then here's an article in the Daily Mail from 2016. A step closer to designer babies? Human cells could be made from scratch in 10 years as scientists reveal plans to create entire synthetic genomes. Scientists today announced a landmark plan to recreate entire human cells from scratch within the next 10 years. The enormously complex project involves synthesizing all 6 billion letters of the entire human DNA code, otherwise known as the genome. If the project goes ahead, it could have far-reaching implications for the study of diseases such as cancer and even growing replacement organs, say researchers. But the work could also heighten existing public concerns over a fast track to designer babies. Scientists are hoping the completed DNA, once it's made, will be implanted into a living cell and its hopes start to divide. At this point, scientists will have created for the first time a whole human cell of their own design. Named the Human Genome Project Right, as in W-R-I-T-E, it could enable researchers to make synthetic human genes and chromosomes for study. This could include chromosome 21, an extra copy of which is responsible for Down syndrome. But implications could extend far beyond to growing organs for transplant patients, engineering immunity to lethal viruses such as Ebola or Zika, and even developing cancer-resistant cells in the lab. Writing in the journal Science, researchers explain that plans to create a synthetic genome will be the next step on from sequencing of the human genome, which was completed in 2004. Led by Professor Jeff Beek of New York University, the authors write that HGP write would be a natural progression and would switch research from a reading to a writing mood. The group's paper follows in the wake of closed-door meetings on genome editing held at Harvard Medical School last month with scientists, lawyers, entrepreneurs and government officials but from which journalists were excluded. Why would that be? One of the main goals outlined by the group is to slash the cost of engineering man-made genomes within cells in the lab, reducing the cost 1,000-fold over the coming decade and making the approach more affordable. The team said it would be an expansion of techniques already used in the lab to edit human and animal cells, but scaled up considerably from making small amounts of synthetic DNA. The 25 experts have outlined their aims that they initially need £70 million 
to launch the project. They said the final cost was difficult to estimate, but would likely be a little more than £2 billion, which was the cost of the human genome project. Beat claims the technology that needed to be developed to synthesize the human genome could also be used to construct animal and plant genomes, such as those of pigs and mice. Synthetic world. Possible applications include being able to grow in pigs human organs for transplantation. By being able to write long sections of DNA code, it should be possible to genetically alter organs so that they are not rejected by the human body when transplanted. The scientists say that the project will require consideration of ethical, legal and social implications from the start. Scientists have already created a synthetic life form called Mycoplasma Laboratorium. It had only around 580,000 DNA base pairs compared to around 3 billion in a human. So to create an entirely synthetic human cell is vastly more difficult. The four building blocks of DNA, A, G, C and T, adenine, guanine, cytosine and thymine, are difficult to work with as they become increasingly brittle as the strands of DNA get longer, making them more difficult to manipulate. To achieve the aim of synthesizing the entire human genome will require a huge leap forward in techniques used to replicate DNA, assemble it into long strands and to implant it in a cell. But just as computers became hugely cheaper and more powerful in a short amount of time, scientists believe that the technology will rapidly advance. But you have to bear in mind that whatever exists technologically in the public arena is always massively behind what exists outside of that. Under guidelines outlined in today's paper, the initial stages would see a number of pilot projects carried out to explore techniques and make small chunks of the genome, around 1% of the total. However, the authors explain it will require public involvement and consideration of ethical, legal and social implications from the start. One of the main arguments against research into editing of the human genome has been that any changes could be passed on to future generations through the germline in sperm and egg cells. Epigenetics, talked about that before where genetic traits are passed on. Genetic memory, as well, is very similar. The article goes on. At the end of 2015, this led scientists to call for a moratorium on the tinkering with the DNA of any cell, which can be inherited by the next generation, which had been demonstrated in non-viable human embryos by a Chinese team earlier in the year. But the group has outlined security measures for ultra-safe cells with edited genomes, making it impossible for them to pass on changes down the germline. Well, they say they'll be ultra-safe. Experts reacting to the news have said that the proposal is just the start of an open and transparent debate on the topic of creating a man-made human genome. Well, they don't want an open and transparent debate because the truth would be at risk of being discussed and known about if that happened. And it's like this meeting that journalists were excluded from at Harvard Medical School. If it was supposed to be an open and transparent debate, why would that have happened? The article goes on. Work is already underway to create a man-made yeast genome with two groups in the UK involved in creating synthetic chromosomes as part of the project. The latest proposals will be an extension of the research to humans and an increase in the scale. Researchers not involved with the group have said making man-made DNA will enable scientists to uncover the role of elements in the human genome without a clear role and why there is so much variation from person to person. Dr. Nathan Richardson, head of molecular and cellular medicine at the Medical Research Council, told the Mail Online, To our knowledge, there have been no serious discussions within the UK about contributing to such an initiative. A major international initiative such as this would need substantial funding commitments from multiple countries. Whether it is necessary to establish an international consortium of the likes of the Human Genome Sequencing Initiative is a matter for debate. Dr. Richardson also highlighted the need for responsible research in line with existing legislation which will need to evolve as the technology advances. 
Hugh Whittle, director of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, told Mail Online, This is a highly speculative article about future possibilities in genomic research, and we will keep an eye on whether and how it develops. Well, it will develop. The quote goes on, As the authors know, it will be important for the potential ethical considerations to be addressed from the earlier stages. He added, This should be an inclusive, public and transparent debate that considers the public interest in research policies and priorities, potential applications, as well as possible risks and regulatory responses. Well, it should be, but it, that's the last thing it will be. The Nuffield Council on Bioethics is carrying out a consultation on human genome editing and expects to publish its findings later this year. That would have been 2016. And there's another section here. The quest to create artificial life. Building an entire life form from scratch is a daunting task, although many scientists believe it may be possible within the next 10 years. They believe that synthetic living systems can be made to order to solve a range of problems from producing new drugs to creating biofuels. However, while these cells could replicate, they were not able to survive without crucial nutrients provided by the scientists. This, they insist, is an important safety measure to stop synthetic cells from escaping and replicating in the environment. Well, you see, now that is the chasm between what even scientists know and what goes on that we're not told about because synthetic material is dropping from the sky all the time from chemtrails which I talk about in episode 50 and people like Ray Kurzweil, executive of Google and co-founder of the Singularity University, a transhuman tech university in Silicon Valley, California where the transhuman agenda is being massively driven from Silicon Valley has said that all of nature will become synthetic as I said and how are you going to do that? Are you going to get people going around with jetpacks on spraying everything with nanotechnology or smart dust or digital dust or neural dust as it's also called which is a massive part of transhumanism how is it going to happen? Nanotechnology is synthetic how are you going to do it the whole of nature? It's got to come from the sky it's the only way you can do it so there's a massive chasm between what the public know, what scientists know, and what's actually going on. The article goes on. His latest breakthrough provides a basic life form that can then be adapted and moulded by adding new genes, allowing scientists to customise it. Yet synthetic life will not necessarily have to be based on the same biochemical molecules as our own. Researchers at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge used an entirely synthetic form of DNA called XNA to store genetic information and catalyse simple biochemical reactions where there's also PNA and GNA they're also synthetic the article goes on these could eventually be used to involve entirely new forms of life the scientists believe scientists at the University of Glasgow have also found it possible to mimic evolution by creating successive generations of oil droplets so this synthetic human agenda is unfolding now and there's another section and there's another couple of sections here as well how they will build synthetic DNA 1. Scientists map out the complex DNA code of four chemicals that makes up the human genome, the complete set of genetic material in our cells containing 6 billion pieces of information. 2. The entire genome is recreated in a lab. New techniques will be needed to connect the sections of DNA into the genes that make up chromosomes. 3. The complete replica chromosomes will be injected into a hollowed out human cell, which will then start dividing. 4. These cells could be used in gene therapy to treat diseases such as cancer or to create human organs, which could be grown in pigs and engineered to not be rejected when transplanted into people. But it's not being done to treat illness or to grow organs. It's being done because of 
the agenda I'm talking about. Another section. What are they proposing? Researchers are suggesting the launch of a project to produce man-made human genomes in the lab. Human Genome Project Right will enable researchers to expand on techniques already being used in the lab to create synthetic yeast and synthesis DNA in the lab. The group of 25 scientists has highlighted the need for technology and ethical frameworks but say the approach could lead to growing organs for transplant patients, engineering immunity to lethal viruses such as Ebola or Zika, making synthetic genes to study their role in cells, synthesizing whole chromosomes such as chromosome 21, an extra copy of which is responsible for Down syndrome, developing cancer-resistant cells in the laboratory. But none of that is what it's really about. There's a few reasons why there's a synthetic human agenda. One is so that population numbers can be controlled as the synthetic human will have no means of procreation and this is where the transgender fluid gender agenda comes in and to create a synthetic genetics a synthetic form that is able to live within the massively irradiated smart cities of agenda 21 agenda 21 out of the united nations justified by human caused climate change and the smart cities of the transhuman agenda synthetic humans and a synthetic world is the agenda it's a stepping stone on the road to this agenda, as I explained in episode 8. Aldous Huxley summed up the situation in Brave New World with this quote. The parents were the father and the mother. These are unpleasant facts, I know it. But then most historical facts are unpleasant. For you must remember that in those days of gross viviparous reproduction, children were always brought up by their parents and not in state conditioning centres. The agenda is the end of family, parenting biological reproduction and natural gender by natural gender i mean man woman gay lesbian as opposed to transgender or any of these other genders that have been invented where you can just decide that you are that gender off the top of your own head with nothing to back it up and we're seeing it unfold and this is why any questioning of transgender and gender fluidity or even just open debate is attacked as being discrimination and not politically correct because open debate will lead to facts and information the agenda doesn't want circulating and this is why the response must be to circulate that information so that's it for this week that's the news that's the context and connections that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye